Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by the editor and broadcaster Stig Abel. Starting out at the Press Complaints Commission, Stig held a variety of roles including Press Officer, Assistant Director and Deputy Director before being chosen to lead the organisation in 2010. After a stint in corporate PR at Pagefield Communications, he moved into frontline journalism, becoming managing editor of The Sun and also starting to present primetime on LBC Radio. Now editor of the Times Literary Supplement, he also hosts the Sunday afternoon show on LBC, regularly previews the news for Sky and writes for a range of publications including the New York Times and the Sunday Times. Stig, thank you for joining me. Great pleasure, Paul. What's it like to be the interviewee rather than the interviewer? Well, we've actually had a conversation. You've come on my show Talk about Indeed. your defence of, of Tony Blair. And rightly so. Rightly God so. God love him. It got a lot of calls. Um, Tony Blair, one of the most divisive figures, and, and uh, so short of friends now that because you wrote a very nice piece about him, he sent you a letter, didn't he? He did indeed, thought, yeah. That's very kind of him, but probably shows that the number of friends he has uh, is reducible to the number of people he can now send letters to. I, I just think that it just shows he's a class act. My only criticism of Tony is that it, we didn't invade enough countries. <laughs> You definitely have to come back on. All I can do is for an LBC listener's catnip. <laughs> Praising Tony Blair for, for being a warmonger is catnip to LBC uh, audiences. No, so we've had this conversation where I've been asking you questions rather than the other way, way around. And it's nice to talk to you. I don't mind which, which way around we are, Paul. It's nice to be in the same room talking. But, I mean, seriously, that, that is a, something I wanted to ask you because this is just a, a chat reel on a podcast, but you're presenting LBC now and you've only just started doing it relatively recently. What was the learning curve there? I've been doing it for two years uh, and one of the things I ended up um, after a bit of, uh, of journey I ended up doing a breakfast show with Petri Hoskin who's a long term long time LBC she's left now but she was LBC for a long time and I found learning on the job of talk radio was easier because I was doing a breakfast show with someone else who could do junctions really well who could the whole point I think on LBC is starting a conversation where you get people to call in and it's quite daunting so my Sunday afternoon show now you start talking at the top of an hour talk to someone like you and then start talking and then you see the switchboard in front of you and either it lights up because people want to talk back to you or it stays resolutely silent if you're not making any sense or saying anything interesting or provocative which so it's would a, be the nightmare scenario which is course. the nightmare scenario and and but it's such an it's such a clear measurement of what you're saying it's a really good discipline so I, I found the learning curve was easy because I was doing it with someone who was an old hand at it who was very generous in in helping me and then once you get it's like any job and it's like you doing this once you get the furniture in your mind and once you do it a bit of time and once you sit there and and, and think of what you want it to sound like and you do it regularly so you're coming back every week and, and hopefully you you build an audience of people who either like you or or like being annoyed by you a listener's a listener yeah and they come back to you and they feedback on on text and they feedback on twitter and and by calling in it becomes very comfortable and although it means I, I end up working six days a week, so I do my job at the TLS for five days, and then on a Sunday I, I go into LBC at 11 o'clock and, and come back at seven. So it's another day's work, more or less. It's a real pleasure still, because it's, 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 it's challenging, it's interesting, and, and you, get to, you get to talk about interesting topics, topics that interest you and you kind of hope other people would like to talk about. And you have to think about what those are. So it's, it's, it's a really sort of honest place, LBC. There's not, and as you'll know, it's not got a lot of frills. If you go at the weekends, it's pretty quiet. It's you and two or three or four other really uh, keen, really clever young kids very often. You don't get paid very much. And so it feels, it reminds me a bit of like the old days of the Press Complaints Commission where not very many people 
there. And so you, you build a team spirit. I mean, my, my daughter bakes a cake once a week uh, on Saturday night or Sunday morning for the production team uh, at LBC. That's kind of become a thing every week. I bring in a different cake that my, my daughter's made. And it, it feels very much like home in, in that respect. And it, and it feels like it's, it's kind of worth doing. Do you still like the thrill of being on air? I mean, we had Jeremy Vine in that chair many, many moons ago now, and he said that you've either got the show off Gene or you haven't, and he just admits that he has. He loves the thrill of being on air. I think I have the show off Gene. I mean, nothing like uh, the, the, the talents or the success of, of Jeremy Vine. I think I'm, I have a show off Gene in one way. I really like doing broadcast and, and expressing my opinion. I don't particularly like being the centre of attention in a room. So the idea of like a, a birthday party with 30 people there sends a shiver down my spine or an event... For me, I wouldn't be interested in showing off at something like that. But if you say, oh, do you want to go and blather on for three hours every Sunday on, on the national radio? I'll say yes and really enjoy doing it. So I have a show off gene, but it's a slightly, slightly sort of crippled and twisted one. I have quite a few friends at LBC. I'm thinking of people like yourself, Ian Collins, Ian Dale. And, uh, you know, it's not something I would want to do because I would be worried that I wouldn't know enough to challenge people. I, I enjoy this podcast because I can, you know, get people on like yourself and I'm genuinely interested in your career and we can have a bit of a chat. But to be provocative and deal with the public and, and like you say, you know, live and die on whether those the, the lights on the screen light up with incoming callers, it seems to me quite stressful. It's good discipline, though, because I think we all talk all the time with a certain level of knowledge and if you know you're going to be talking on the television or the radio you've got to make sure you've read stuff but people who like reading and like thinking do that anyway so I think you find that it's actually quite a good check every week for me and for people like Ian Dale and Ian Collins they do it every day it's that sort of that sense of doing it every day or every week you've got to make sure you know what you're talking about a lot of people would say I don't know what I'm talking about you know a lot of people will and do text in, call in, say I'm a sort of dreadful, remoaning liberal who uh, uh, has no sense and wants, uh, you know, want, is is completely cut off from the reality of the world. So people are very, very uh, free with their criticisms. But you need to know the facts. But anyone who's interested in the world knows that anyway. You know, you, you find places to read stuff. You go to, you know, you read newspapers, you 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 read websites, you, you listen to other radio stations or watch television, and there's still a, a suite of places you can get information now. The, 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 the fear for anyone who likes journalism is we all use those sources of information all the time and it's getting increasingly hard for the places that produce them to make any money. And while we're living in the age, I think, of where the distribution of information, you can make tons of money. If you look at the big companies now, they don't make anything really apart from Apple. They're distribution networks. So you've got Google, Facebook, Amazon. Why do they make so much money? Because they don't produce anything. They're, they're, just, not, they're, they're not content just, makers. No, they just curate stuff, and then they're brilliant at it. Uh, and other than Apple, which which obviously is a proper manufacturer and makes things, eBay is another good example. Apple don't make anything, of course. They outsource all to Foxconn in China, which is a completely separate company. Really, but, an entirely third party. So maybe they, they carry the same sort of uh, the same sort of principles. But what that what, there's an interesting question, the sort of cliff we're driving off here, which is what happens when. There's no longer places where people are producing decent content, where the Guardian goes out of business because it's losing 70 million quid a year. Um, and but the, for the Scott Trust, it, or an auto trader sale, it would have closed down years ago. Well, it would have, but even even with the sale of auto trading, that you know, when Alan Rusbridger left, it had it was sitting on a cash pile of whatever it was, nearly a billion quid, and it looked like it would last forever. And they've cut through it really quickly. It's they're, losing already, 70, they're losing 70 million quid a year, <laughs> and you think how. And whatever uh, arguments one might have with the Guardian over the years, you want it to exist. Of course, you and do. You want I love to, the Guardian, uh, and you want it to be successful. And and people who who bemoan the Daily Mail or the Sun or any of these places, 
I don't think you want to live in a country where they don't exist. And uh, with all mass media, with all media, there are very, very few places that make money. I mean, the Daily Mail is cutting 30 or 40 million of cost and it's going to lose 400 people across both arms. And every three or four months when I read that the Telegraph's shedding a, you know, hemorrhaging a load of jobs, I always think to myself, well, how have they got anyone left to, to let go? Yeah, and they still make money, though. But it's, That's probably it's, why. It's, it's, it's reducing. And I, I think for anyone in the business of, of journalism and the business of, of talking about news and being interested in it, there's a bit of a fear here that Twitter and Facebook are great for the world, probably, although I think you can easily articulate the downsides of both of them, you know, Twitter being a real prime example of that. But they are effectively, although this sounds harsh and it may be intended, a parasitic medium. They're, they're reliant on people producing stuff for them for free. And what happens when that supply dries up? Um, what happens when, when there's no real journalists being trained? I mean, would you advise, if someone came to you, an 18-year-old said to you, shall I get into journalism, would you say that was a good idea? Well, I mean, it depends, really. I mean, if they want to do it for the love of it, you know, we, we had Heidi Blake on recently. She's an amazing investigative journalist. You do some of these things you don't do for the money. But, yeah, if you, if you want to be, if you want to have a few bob, then don't go into journalism. Yeah. No, well, go but, into PR, really. Well, and there's more PRs in, in, in London than there are journalists now. There's, that's the same as true in the United States of America. Look at BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed, fantastic site. They invest money in things like Heidi Blake and her investigative journalism, which I suspect a very small proportion of people of their audience read. And it's still not making any money. BuzzFeed, they cut their profitability prediction by half. This notion of people clicking, seeing an ad as a way of paying for journalism doesn't seem like it's actually ever going to fully work out for people. Does it? And, and if, if that's the case, and you know, basic economics tell you if there's an unlimited supply of uh, places where adverts can go, an unlimited supply of adverts effectively, their yield is never going to go up. It's only going to go down. So you can chase the biggest numbers in the world they're never going to turn into the sorts of levels of income that we've historically seen in traditional media. And and, and that's a big, big problem. I see LBC as an incredible brand. You know, I, I, I follow it on Twitter and Facebook and every so often it'll come up saying, here's a 30-second clip of James O'Brien arguing very eloquently with some idiot. You know, here's a clip of Stig Abel arguing yeah. with someone. It's great. And I like it when they take you on. It's great radio. But of course, they can't monetize that. I imagine they want me to then click on the link. So I'm then, then on LBC's website and I'm trying to, they're trying to recruit me as a listener to your show. I think that's probably right. And I, I think what, what people are now looking at generally in the business is you have an audience, you make them like you, and then over time you find different ways to, 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 to make money through them. You, you, you sell them different things. I mean, the one area of potential growth, which is where I am now, you know, more by luck than by judgment, there seems to be, you can argue, that in niche, high-end journalism, subscription-based journalism, there is a future because people... Because of the great democratization, the great flattening out, the great cheapening of the internet, anyone can get news and gossip anywhere for free. So there is now a premium on long-form expertise, although Michael Gove wouldn't agree with this, uh, expertise and um, decent, thoughtful journalism. And you're willing to pay a subscription for it. So, you know, I'm at a paper, the TLS, which can go on for 114 years. It's probably come back into fashion, actually, now. It's now part of the zeitgeist because we can have an online and print business together so you can buy a subscription and get online and a print version of the paper. The print's probably the hero of that. Um, you're willing to have a relationship. Others, We do a podcast. Uh, we do a newsletter. We engage people like that. But this is in growth. You know, I've been here three or four months and we've seen 
sales go up by 20% over that, that period. It is, a, it is a part of the business that is in growth. Look at the Spectator, the New Statesman, the Economist, the Times. They're all in growth because they fit this idea of a niche, high-end subscription business. And that side of journalism actually feels in quite a healthy state. The breadth of journalism, the range of journalism is the thing I think that is, is, is under threat. And, I mean, do you think that we'll have as many newspapers 10 years from now as we do? I mean, can the Star and the Express exist? No. Uh, even the Daily Mirror, for goodness sake. I mean, you can't be making money, surely. They probably are making money, but they're making money um, by cutting. And so you can easily get into this cycle of decline where you, you're making less money. Advertising is now is now moving away from print. So you make less money, so you cut more, so your product uh, is less less attractive and has less quality, so fewer people read it, so you cut more. So it becomes less uh, less attractive and, and, and the quality is reduced. So fewer people engage with it, so you cut more. And and that's the dangerous cycle to get into. And it's happened with the Express and, and the Star. It's happened with the, with the Mirror, arguably, as well. So I think there will be fewer newspapers. I think the Guardian will, will, will try and prop itself up. But the Guardian should have introduced the paywall. And the Guardian really, Guardian writers and Guardian editors heralded by the Harry Potter-like figure at the top, Alan Rusbridger, really looked down on the Times. Mm. What, the, what the hell? The Times that understand the internet. The Times that understand the modern world because they're behind a paywall and it's ridiculous. They've lost their influence. And you do trade with a, with a paywall, I think, influence versus money in some respects because of your, you are reducing your range. But The Guardian is now living in this world where they say, oh, can you please give us 50 quid a year? For what? Uh, um, to become a please, friend. To, come, to become a friend. We say, well, if, if you value your journalism... And it's very good. And put it behind a paywall. And put it behind a paywall. But they're so locked into that that I, I don't think they, they can do now. And, and, you know, the Telegraph should be behind a harder paywall because, you know, the Telegraph, you're supposed to pay if you hit a certain number of articles. I've never once hit my limit. Now, you, you can just go into incognito. Yeah, you can go into incognito, you just go on your phone. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't seem to recognise your phone or a different device, so you could do that forever. So again, it's almost like a sort of Wikipedia model. Mm, the FT are good, though. I mean, I, we subscribe as a, in my agency to uh, the FT, but, uh, you know, if you do log out and forget to log back in, it is very good. You get, th- like, three articles, and then it can tell. Yeah, and we do at the TLS. We, we, we do, so 40 articles in the paper a week. We probably make three or four of them free. We then do some free articles that aren't in the paper but relate to 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 that we um we do this podcast which is free we do a a newsletter which is free so we're constantly saying come and look at us come and come and see us see if you like us but ultimately if you want to have a deep relationship with the product and you might not but if you do then you'll have to pay a subscription and are people willing to pay it then is that is that your your basic your uh... i think so i hope so i mean People, my experience of TLS readers is if if once once you get them and they like it, they really like it. I was in Brooklyn at a literary festival, and this is nothing to do with me. This is a long-standing relationship with the paper. This guy, he probably was eighty-five. This uh, uh, guy from Brooklyn. I was sitting by the stand where we had a stand and we're giving out stuff, and he came in and said, "Oh, you're the editor of the TLS." He had sort of very papery hands and sort of he was very he was very very old, and he said, I, I love love the TLS. I read it every week, and he started talking to me about a piece that we'd had in the paper two weeks before about how O.J. Simpson was like Othello, written by uh, a, a woman from Berkeley in, in the West Coast of America. But he was, he, I just love that. He was saying, I love that piece. It was so interesting. This is what I think about it. And actually having that experience of talking to people who care about a product because it's defined, it knows what it is. I think that's what I'm very keen on with this. I do think we've kind of come back into fashion again, which is great, but we kind of know what we are. Just as sort of the fast food 
of the 80s created the slow food movement. I really believe we're living now in a culture where sort of slow culture is the sort of counterculture. It's really clearly defined. We live in a culture, I think, where people are autodidacts. So you sort of say about people wanting to know, have greater depth of information. People want to learn about stuff again because they get loads of quick crap information fired at them the whole time. The whole modern world is a sort of deluge of of, of bite-sized crap. The price of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah, and and what the and, and the response to that is you might say, well, occasionally I want to sit back and read 3,000 words about something written by someone who knows exactly what they're talking about, and I will enjoy that as, a, as an experience because it's very different from my daily life, which is much more commoditized, much more, 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 more sort of quick firing. And what is a typical week for you then? Because you, you do have the very definition of a portfolio career now. You've, you've mentioned your LBC show, you're editing the TLS, you're doing the press preview on Sky, you're, yeah. um, you're tweeting away. I think you're one of the best tweeters there are, oh, actually. I God genuinely do follow you. Do you? Uh, yeah, I think your tweets are quite interesting, actually. I've got a short, a private list on my Twitter that, that's called Interesting. Uh, and I'm on that. You're what one of about ten people. What, I don't know who else is on it. Uh, well, I, I, discretion is the better okay, part fine, of valour. Uh, no, I, I, I came to Twitter very late. In fact, you and I spoke about it when, when probably three or four years ago. I, I, I hated the. I, I kind of still, I still have an abusive relationship with Twitter. I think because I do hate the narcissism of it. I hate what it makes me as a, as a narcissist. But what I do like about it is. It's a chance to offer comment and, and, and banter with people. I hate the word banter. Yeah. Uh, but offer comment and, and jokes with people. And, and it's a kind of test of wit, isn't it? It's a kind of test of skill to, to convey a funny idea in 140 characters. I don't think it's a terrible discipline in itself to try and be clear and concise and funny. And I'm not saying I am, but that's, that's the aim of the game, isn't and the, it? The notifications button is basically the me button, isn't it's it? Awful. If, it's if awful. I, if I tweet something and then I go back an hour later and it says 82 whatever, yeah, which yeah. is never really, it's usually about 10 or 20, but I'm like, ooh, ooh yeah, exactly. someone, someone's, I've annoyed someone. Yeah, and, at one level, attention. and at one level, you know how crass and cheap and pathetic it is. Oh, it's and, awful. And my wife, quite correctly sort of looks at me and just says, what are you doing? And, and I think it's really dangerous because you're sitting with your family and your phone's over there and it's sort of burbling away and you think, oh, I should look at that. And you think, well, hang on, what, why? Why am I doing this? Why, why am I exchanging real-life communication for, for a load of... <laughs> to argue with a load of idiots yeah, and Yeah, or, or, or try and show off to them, even worse. Yeah. I mean, it's not only to argue with them, it's yeah. to be validated. Please validate me, like yeah. me, retweet yeah. me. It's, yeah. it's the kind of worst... It's the worst of narcissism. So I don't... But... It's quite fun as it's quite fun as well, it and I think fun. and I, I think probably as, as you build your business and and what you do, there's a value in being out there a little bit and people knowing who you are. And I, you know, I, I I have also have this phenomenon which I think is nice, where you meet someone you only ever previously met on Twitter, a Twitter friend, mm. and you immediately say, "Yeah, I re- you know, I really like you. I don't know why I really like you, but you I've just tell I've just someone. seen you, and we've kind of we have a we have a bit of some form of of rapport even over that distance and. And that's kind of charming to set against the the vile base narcissism of the rest of it. Uh, there is that moment of sort of charming reflection. Oh yeah, I, I never knew that person, but now I I do kind of know them at one remove. And do you, I mean do you get a lot of grief because you do have a reasonably high profile doing the Sky press preview, for example, on LBC. You know, you're much more public facing than I am. Uh, I run a PR business and present an obscure podcast, but y- y- you know, you you have thousands of people listening to you. Do they interact with you? Yeah, I mean a lot uh, in a great. I mean in, in a uh, sometimes it's a it's a negative way, obviously. And you know I've I worked at the Sun, um, and I do stuff on Sky. So there's the whole people who don't like Murdoch have a view of of me, and LBC. I mean on LBC I, I've you know articulated various views of what I think of UKIP or what I I think of Brexit. And you have people say you're a 
dreadful person and I don't, want to, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast but you know we can't apple or banners yeah. we're, we're frightened of the ghost of Steve yeah. Jobs yeah fine we're, we're, you're really sticking it to the machine there are you absolutely um, so but you know people say all sorts of things and, and you know uh, and there's definitely been moments when I was at the Sun um, I've had death threats I've had rape threats against my seven year old daughter who oh, they name awful uh, but that's the nature of, of Twitter. it's an interesting question actually which I, I've not entirely formulated an answer to is whether human beings have always been unpleasant this unpleasant uh, and Twitter is merely a more visible way of seeing it so it's the, the it's it's revealing what people always have been or has the medium actually created uh, that characteristic is, is is this a new development of of humanity, which is a negative one, or is it just? I mean, if you'd ha- if you'd had insight into the minds of people twenty years ago, in the way that social media does, would they have been thinking the sort of things that people say now and people write, or or, or is that a kind of new new development? Um, no, but could I have, it's never even crossed my mind to send someone a horrible tweet. I'll challenge someone robustly, but I would I would never be rude. I just think it's frightfully. Well, it's just awful. I don't understand why people do it. So is it, but is it new or is it how people always have been? Is the, the psychologists have come up with this, I forget the exact term, but it's something like disassociative syndrome, isn't it? Where you, you're sitting there in your attic and you just think you can say horrible things to people because they're just, it's just a Twitter account. It's not like, real. Yeah, it's not, but it, of course it is real, but they're, yeah. they're somehow, um, they somehow excuse their behaviour that way. It's weird. I mean, you can shrug it. I mean, none of it's the end of the world, is it? And and, and, and some of it's actually good. I mean, one of the things I think has changed the, the business that I've been in in whatever form over the last few years, is that newspapers particularly were very, very monolithic institutions. It was all pushed out. They were completely in control. This is what you're going to listen to. This is what you're going to read. Lump it. Here it is. Yeah. And you'll want it because there's, there's, a, there's a massive restriction in terms of what people are, are can read or listen to. If you think 20 years ago, if you wanted news, you listened to... The Radio 4 News or whatever station you like news, LBC News, um, and you could watch the 6 o'clock or the 10 o'clock news, and you could read newspapers. And so this gigantic monopoly happened. And to get in trouble, to be in, in reputational danger, to, to talk about you know, your line of work, you had to do something really bad to get on the front page of a newspaper or to get on the 6 o'clock news. Now, of course, everything is immediate, 24-hour responsive. And so reactions come back instantly and so you are much more closely connected to to people otherwise you would just been talking at and so the value i see in something like lbc where you're talking to people who call back to you is actually now extended across the whole of the media and newspapers who've had a monopoly for 250 years of of telling it how they want it to be told and saying to people buy it i mean you've got to have a a, a relationship such that people will pay money for it but it's a passive one thereafter we are telling you stuff and you've got to consume it that's been turned on its head. Now, newspapers are the same as any other brand, the same as any other person. Anything they say and do is immediately dissected, analysed, mocked, criticised, campaigned against. And that changes the whole feel of it. And in some ways, it's healthy because it means the status quo is never accepted. You can't get away with saying something because someone will say, well, hang on a second, that's, that's not true. Uh, or we object to that or we're going to we're going to formulate our objection we're going to congregate and, and and make our objection and that's a that's a completely different world than it would have been 20 years ago tell us about your time at the sun because you know you got your double first at cambridge you you, you eventually rose through the ranks to become director of the pcc you then do go into corporate pr communications at pagefield and then you take a job as managing editor of the sun it's a, quite a quite a left field step well, in fact when i saw you appointed on on linkedin cuz we're connected i thought that's that's a left field step yeah, although, I mean, as director of the Press Complaints Commission and the previous years, I, I'd basically spent 
five years not being able to turn my phone off because I was always the middleman between someone who's being reported on by a newspaper and the newspaper itself. I'd, I used to have to give advice to editors. We've had Matt T in that very chair. Yeah, and, and, and we kind of developed that kind of responsive idea and it was only sort of six of us and so you're always on call and at any time of the day or night people would call you at midnight and say this has gone into the paper to, to now what can we do about it i imagine that was quite a stressful job it was it was and it was lovely in lots of ways because people didn't really value us you know people always sort of had a go at the pcc damned if you do damned if you don't and you and and, and but what that led to was a group of people who were all in their 20s and 30s all working really hard thanklessly but that, that, that formulates a real bond of, of people. You know, I met my wife at the Press Complaints Commission. I interviewed her for a job. Um, I got some... Is, is, that, is that your way to meet women then? No, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. It's an, incre- it's, an inc- it's, an inc- it's an incredibly stressful way of, of meeting women. But, You're not kidding. But it, it became a... It was, a, it's a, it was actually a, a place where you, you really valued the colleagues you were working with because it was quite a hard job. You're trying to... Sort You're in of the trenches. ...regulate, in inverted commas, something that should also be free. So you, you were effectively on a striding a paradox the whole time this should be free but it all should should be responsible and that's quite difficult so but my role there was sort of often advising newspapers so uh, i got a call from the, the then new editor of the sun david dinsmore who said i'm coming in they had all sorts of difficulties with people being arrested and prosecuted for paying public officials the whole industry was still suffering the after effects of of leveson and there'd been a sort of loss of confidence and a loss of abilities for people to make decisions so he david dinsmore very very good man who who's now the COO of the company uh, brought me in to try and help people make better decisions try and make sure the business was run properly to make sure that employee relations were proper to make sure that the processes were in place that we were we were paying people in in the correct way so the managing editor of a, of a newspaper we should explain to our listeners is a, is a little bit like being the managing director of the business of the newspaper yeah. is that fair yeah it, it, it is except there's people above you running the whole business so you, you're, you're less autonomous than a managing director of a business but you're doing a lot of the day-to-day you're the running business of, guy yeah so you're, you're it's a it's hr it's it's making sure you're on budget it's dealing with complaints it's dealing with with uh, lawyers and it's trying to make sure i mean newspapers are, i mean and, and then you know the sun makes its fair share of mistakes and it did when i was there but the, the principle we always used to try to say is try and do things the right way and 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 understand why you're doing them and if you're going to do something that's that's going to be controversial make sure you don't do it accidentally and often people don't believe this but you'll know this from your time in pr most of the really egregious things that newspapers do are Cock-ups. Every scandal I've ever been involved in trying to fix behind the scenes in 20 years in PR has always largely been cock-up rather than conspiracy. People are busy. People they, haven't, they haven't got time to conspire to do anything. You can't even get them in the same room. No, and newspapers, I mean, if you ever go to one at, at a daily newspaper at, at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night as it's being put to bed, you know, the sun used to go off stone at sort of 20, 10, 10.30, it's a shambles. I mean, it's the, it, I mean, it, it is a, it's, 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 it's a kind of, it's an exhilarating shambles and it's a shambles undertaken by often very hard-working, very talented people. But you're trying to, to balance together all sorts of, you know, there's hundreds of stories going in a paper, they're moving left, right and centre, uh, information's coming in, you're having to make very quick judgments. The editor is often having to make very quick judgments. And newspapers always point upwards. So, um, and one of the issues I think that exists within newspaper culture is it's always someone above you's decision because of the way they're, they're structured. And, and the problem is that people lose a bit of the ability to make decisions for themselves in that way. Often they'd make very good ones. And so it's, it's a very hard thing to do, a newspaper, and that's why things go wrong in them very often. And sometimes they can go systemically wrong and sometimes there's going to be problems of cultures. But 
my time at, um, at, at The Sun, which was predominantly under David Dinsmore as the editor, it knew what it was. It knew what it was trying to do. It was trying to be a fun, exclusive-driven, informative product that its readers wanted. It knew what it wanted to be. And it, it gets into... It, it makes mistakes and it makes bad decisions and, and judgments are sometimes wrong. But its purpose, in the end, as a paper, is as a benign one, I think, at the sum when I, I, was, I was there. And unlike many managing editors, you, you were the actual editor, weren't you, once a week on a Sunday night for Monday's paper? Is yeah, that right? not, not once a week. You're going to know that all papers have this. They have a Sunday for Monday editing road because no editor um, at their great in elevated, their right at the great would, elevated would, level yeah, wants, wants, wants to do that. And so it's the kind of, it's the B team. Um, so I was part of the B team and there's sort of two or three, there's three, when I was doing it, it was two or three people and you shared it out over the course of the month. And that must have been a real thrill. Oh, is that, is, it was, it was such good fun because, you know, I wasn't a journalist. I'm never quite sure when people say journalist, whether I am a journalist actually, uh, at all. Well, say me, I've got a press card. I do this podcast. Yeah. People say that this is journalism, but is, is it, it journalism? Well, I, I, don't, I actually genuinely don't know. No, I don't know. Maybe it's not worth worrying about because it's just, it, it's whatever it is. Well, but, I always say no, just in case I miss a really obvious question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah you're trying to, try to get away with it. Well, well I, I had Mark Thompson on for an hour and a bit in New York last week and I forgot to ask him about Savile. I literally <laughs> forgot. That's a pretty big, <laughs> A pretty big thing when he's director general. He would have been prepared for it. Then. I'm <laughs> no. not sure what you'd have got out of him. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so on a Sunday, you'd go in, and I, used to, I had a breakfast show at that point. Um, so, I'd get in, I'd leave the house at six in the morning, go and do LBC till 10. I'd then get on the tube to the sun for sort of court to 11. You'd go straight into the sort of conferences of the day. This so. is like the media dream lifestyle yeah. I'm hearing right yeah. now. This so was 11 <laughs> and 12, and then you'd, you'd then stick around till nine or 10 at night to sort of put the paper to bed. What was great about it was it was, and it's what I enjoy about being an editor. That bit's creative and 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 fun, and and you again working with really. I mean, my experience of the Sun, and people have a negative view of the the, the Sun in lots of ways. But my experience of of the Sun, you know, lots of the people there, almost everybody I can think of, uh, were just a real genuine pleasure to be around. And when you're putting a paper together on a Sunday for Monday, it's a skeleton staff again. It's a bit like LBC. I'm, Spotting a, a pattern here that I'm always around on the unwanted <laughs> skeleton days. You, you lead up. The, you would be the, on a film. You'd be the first assistant director, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'd be. I'd be the third friend who dies in painful circumstances after 32 minutes. Um, but I, so on, on the Sunday, I would. Uh, but you, you sit there and then you get to come up with with headlines and you get to work out what the order should be. And it's all about hopefully changes of pace and light and shade and making stories put together. And, and the one lesson I've taken from the Sun to the TLS, which are on the face of it very different papers. A thing that, that David and I used to say, and he said it first, and I used to say it thereafter was, what are we going to be remembered for today? And in a daily paper, that could be a story, it could be a headline, it could be a picture. And actually, it's more important for a weekly paper like the TLS, which is you've only got one week, one shot, really, to, to make people care. And, you know, I say this to, to, to the people at the, the, the TLS, what's the thing we're going to be remembered for for this week? What's the great thing we've got? It might, And that might be a lovely long piece about Marx, or it might be... Uh, a couple of very interesting travel pieces or it might be a review of the Turner Prize or it might be any sort of thing. It doesn't really matter what it is, but what's the thing? It might be a woman from Berkeley writing about O.J. Simpson saying why he's like Othello. I, I remember that now. And this guy from New York, this 80-year-old guy from New York, remembered it three weeks later. I'm going to read that on the train home. Yeah, it's brilliant. My I'll wife's send you the, a TLS subscriber. Yeah, I'll send you the link anyway. We, we made that one free for people to get into. Oh, it's, right. it's a really I interesting... I to falsely use her logging credentials don't, don't, to get no, it. Outrageous. But so, so that principle, I think, extends for everything. What are we, It's a really good motto, I think. What, what are we going to be remembered for 
today or, or this week and, and and that's true in any form of, of sort of media expression you want to try and hit something that people will go oh you need to you need do to you, check that out but do you get any kind of emotional baggage when it's that last question on the sun is the kind of emotional baggage moment you know like hillsborough i mean there's been a, a, a tons of editors between kelvin and you know yourself and david and so on and yet there's a obviously a huge boycott in liverpool loads of people seem to be anti the sun i mean ed Miliband got vilified for for posing you know and I, was yet, there, I, was, I was there then and yet nick clegg and david cameron and all the other people did it no one gave them any grief it no, just seemed weird it's very difficult because on the one hand anyone who works at the sun will tell you i mean i was nine when hillsborough happened Anyone who knows anything about the Sun who works there will say it's the worst thing the Sun ever did. It is absolutely, you know, th- that front page was a disgrace. It was outrageous. It was wrong. It was shameful. Now, the Sun has numerous, and people say, well, why haven't you done a front page apology? The Sun has done two front page apologies mm-hmm. about Hillsborough. It's very difficult. But, and in some ways, it's not a matter for us. Anyway, so the way I always dealt with it was that anyone who wants to have an opinion about the Sun and Hillsborough when I was there, particularly anyone from Liverpool, particularly anyone who's, who knows people who suffered at Hillsborough, they're perfectly entitled to that opinion. I wouldn't want to try and persuade them otherwise. It's a matter entirely for them, and I understand it. But all I can say is there's not one single person at the Sun who doesn't regret that that happened. It's apologised numerous times, and I think we all feel that it was a disastrous decision. But it wasn't a decision that the people who, who are on the news desk, who are on the features desk, who are reporters, made. And most of them would have been children when that happened or they w- would have been if, uh, working on other papers or, or doing something else completely. But you do, you carry that baggage. And also the other thing I would say is if you're in the business of being an opinionated, colourful thing like The Sun or like anything in, in newspapers, you can't really begrudge people having an opinionated colourful response to you because it's kind of hypocritical to say that so if people are going to be anti the sun I think it's a shame and particularly when I was there I think they overlooked a lot of the good that the sun did not least in terms of of, of campaigns and charities and and trying to cheer people up I I think there's a lot of good in the heart of the sun but I understand it when you mention Hillsborough it's an indefensible thing that took place and I wouldn't try and defend it but I think critically no one else who I know at the sun would try and defend it either What's the best thing you did at the Sun? Because I remember your dual-page Shakespeare Yeah, splash. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it genuinely was impressive. Because well, the Sun's audience is difficult to write for. It, it, it is, although it's a, the point is to try and write something that's, that's, that, that's interesting and you think people will grab. And here's a good example. Because Sun readers are not idiots. They're not. They're not. I, well, it's not. the cliche, isn't it, that you have to dumb it down. But actually, you don't. You just make the language accessible and, 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 and less opaque. Than... I, I think the danger is, and, and it's dangerous, the BBC gets criticised of this sometimes, rightly, where you can underestimate the, the intelligence of the audience. I remember we, I, I, want, I worked on, you remember the Queen's Jubilee flotilla thing? And remember the BBC's production of that, and instead of like showing what the boats were and the history of them, they had sort of test daily knighting a transvestite in a park because they thought, well, hang on, there's too many facts here. People won't want to be interested in facts. I don't. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think people are interested in, as I said, self-learning. They want to. They want. That's why popular history is popular because people want to to know. But the Shakespeare thing is a really good example, I think, of the sun its best. I wandered in to the features conference. And we've been talking about this because it was St George's Day, and it was, it was the day, and which is Shakespeare's birth and death day, and it was the four hundred fiftieth anniversary. And I, so I went, oh, what are we gonna, for St George's Day, why don't we do the complete works of Shakespeare? And the, and the deputy editor uh, was there, and he's this great production guy, and he got his pencil out. And he said, oh yeah, here's how we'll do it: we'll do all thirty-eight. You write the summaries of all thirty-eight of them, and because I'd just read all of them on the commute, I'd done a thing for the standard how you could read all of Shakespeare in the commute. So you can write all of them, and then what we'll do is we'll do front pages of some of them. 
Uh, and he just got his pencil out and drew how 38 different plays of Shakespeare would fit on a page if eight of them were turned into some front pages and everything else was a summary. So the front pages were, were brilliant. You know, there was Fat Man and Robin for Henry IV. Brilliant. Uh, part one, it was Massacre at the Palace for for Hamlet. And, you know, on the Hamlet Massacre at the Palace in the front and the, the little blurb in the corner of the page said, free cigar for every reader. And things like the little, there were little gags within it. And then we, we did Much Ado About Nothing. So I wrote this sort of laborious summary of Much Ado About Nothing. And the sub looked at it and went, let's just cut it entirely. So Much about, Ado About Nothing had nothing <laughs> uh, underneath it as a description. <laughs> That's quite, quite witty. Yeah, exactly. And so that was me. Yeah, that was an example of, of something I, I, I look back on with great, great pride because it was fun. And on the front page of The Sun, here's an example of some high and low culture meeting. David Moyes had just been fired from Man United. And so the front page was some convoluted pun which the editor came up with about back me, back, sack and crack. I so remember be, that splash. Do you remember that? I back, do, sack yeah. and crack. Uh, but in the corner, it said free complete works of Shakespeare for every reader. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's, that to me is probably what the sun should be doing. So how did you move to the TLS then? Because, I mean, it, it is quite a, quite a change. It is. But my first job in journalism was writing for the TLS. So one of the wonderful things about the TLS, where I'm, a tradition I'm trying to continue is People write to you and say, can I write book reviews? And I, and I remember um, I wrote to the fiction editor, then a woman called Lindsay Duguid, who still writes for the paper. And I, I just left university. Is she evil? Because she's got a great surname. It'd be such a twist if she was she's evil. Not, she's lovely. Uh, uh, the, the whole point of the story is how lovely she is. What I, a shame I, I, that she's not I know, evil. She, yeah, yeah, she's not. <laughs> Lindsay does do good. Uh, so I emailed her and said, oh, I've just left university. Can I write a book review? And she's slightly surprised and said, fine. Here, And, and a book came and said, can I have 600 words by three weeks' time or a month's time. So I wrote the 600 words, sent them off, and they printed it. And then I got regular gigs from them. And then once you write for the TLS, other papers pick you up. So the Spectator and the Telegraph and even American papers will use you. So for, for 10 years or 12 years, while I was at the PCC, I used to write book reviews for the TLS. And presumably you never had to adjudicate on a complaint against yes, the no, TLS. No, thank God, yes. <laughs> it would have been really awkward. But no, I never did. I just, uh, I just so it was a kind of little cottage industry I, I had. It, it became sort of sort of known that, that there might be an opportunity, and so I um, I wrote two pa- a two page document that said this is what I'd do with the TLS if I if I got to run it, and so I become the editor and the publisher, so I kind of run the business side and, and, and the paper, and that sort of bounced around the company, and it has to be approved by various higher up people, and and then they said, okay, why don't you why don't you do it? And it's not quite as crazy as it sounds, like the, some guy from the Sun going to the TLS because it's some guy who was probably why you had exactly the same conversation why is he at the sun anyway why is he at the TLS so lots of people have always said all the jobs I've done why the hell is he doing that which I I do understand but I, I had written for the TLS for 10, 15, 10 years so I had a connection to it I had a love of I, you know a love of reading and books and and this autodidact thing which I think is really important that you know I think all of life is about trying to stretch yourself to try and you know it's a great feeling I think to read an article about something you know nothing about and then even if you just know a little bit about it that afterwards, I think that's a real progress. And the more you can do that, and now my job is very often reading articles where I'm just constantly teaching myself. So it's a great thrill for me. So, But it wasn't quite as strange as it sounded. I had a clear plan for it. I've got a clear vision for it. I think, it, as I said, it's it's got its place in the world now. Uh, I think it's got a place in America. You know, a third of our subscribers are American. So I think the growth potential for it in this niche world of high-quality subscription is, is really there. So 
I, I've stumbled into it, but I've been sort of stumbling around it for sort of 20 years, and so it's not a terrible thing to sort of come back to it. Has there only been any kind of consistent thread through your career? Because, you know, there you are with your double first. What did you want to do when you, when you first left the university? Well, I, had a, I nearly went to Harvard. I was in Harvard last week, but it was only yeah. to buy a hot dog. It's nice, isn't it? It's beautiful. Is it nice? Yeah, it's I'd like beautiful, to. yeah. yeah. I, in the manner of all sort of foolish 21-year-olds, I thought, oh, no, I don't want to be in academia. I, I, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to be in academic institutions, ivory towers. And so I said, no, I'll, I'll go, and go to London to make my fortune. Sounds good. And That's I, what I did about 10 years ago. I'm still seeking it yeah, now. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but we're, we're on the road at least. And, and I, I lived in Loughborough, where, and I thought, I'm not living in Loughborough. Great up there. I wanted to try something different. So I saw an ad in The Guardian which said... It's an entry level at the PCC's complaints officers. No money, come to London. So I, I did that. I've really just followed my, my nose. I mean, there's always been writing, really, because the PCC had to write a lot of decisions. But it's been connected to journalism and ideas, I suppose, because uh, the reason I did the PR stuff was because I've been used to advising editors and people about how to manage their their problems. So there's a bit of problem solving. But no, I, I've just, like anybody, really, just followed my, my nose and, and, and seen where it got got me to we've had loads of really successful people in that chair and they always say you know when you look back at the career it looks like there was a narrative and actually at the time it's just i've gone from one thing to the next and i've met a certain person and they've opened a door you know and you've made your own luck as you've gone along and i think that's uh, hopefully encouraging to to to, to anyone that because it's slightly terrifying as well as well because you know i'm 36 so i've got no idea what job i'll be doing when i'm 46 and just because something has worked up until now there's no guarantee that it will work in in future. So it's daunting, I think, to say, well, I don't really have a plan. But like you say, hopefully, if you put the effort, I think a lot of it's about putting the effort and making sure that you're willing to, you know, to work hard, to to try things, to give it a go and to keep pushing. So at some point, hopefully, you'll get a point where you no longer need to keep pushing. I imagine a lot of people you speak to on this have got to that point, they no longer need to keep pushing because they've got to such a level where they're fine. I'm not at that level. Yeah, I don't know if I ever will be. And my wife always looks at me and says, you'd never be satisfied with anything, you know. The well, first, why should he be? The first time you get something, you're always looking to see what, 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 how you can make it better. But I think there's, there's probably... There's no shame in that. But there is probably a level that people get to. So, but you're right, I, I don't think there's ever a plan. And if you had a plan, it wouldn't come off anyway. So it's probably better just to, 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 to keep going at everything and, and, and see what comes off for you. I mean, I don't expect you to answer this, but I'll have a go anyways. You know, what would be next for you? Or, or is it a question of you're not going to give up, you know, and move on from, say, the TLS or LBC, but you're looking to kind of expand the opportunities to be on air more and that you will you might want to do a Sean Five Live alongside LBC and the TLS and Sky's Preview and all the other stuff you do? At the minute, I'm, I'm four months into the TLS and I've got a big plan for it. So I'm, I'm really committed to, to, to that. I want to write a book at some point. Um, I've got various ideas uh, for that. So I don't know. I mean, and, and, you know, particularly the business we're in, the business of the media, you, who knows? I mean, in, we had a piece in the paper the, uh, last week, I think, which was talking about technology. And I think actually the, how technology is going to impact the world over the next 30 years is fascinating. And I think the automation of the world is, a, is almost the biggest issue facing the world that most people don't think about, including in government. And there's this terrifying passage. My, my fridge is genuinely connected to the internet. We moved house a few months ago and I got a new fridge and it's got it's, uh, an IP yeah. address. Uh, and what happens, you know, driverless cars, what happens when robots effectively take over everything? On one hand, the, the utopian vision is that people will no longer be defined by their jobs. They'll have more free time and therefore humanity will improve. Downside, the dystopian view is the economy will suffer. People will not have jobs and we'll have a real big problem within this and the government will have to think about doing things like universal basic income and, and ideas that hitherto have been impossible. 
so we had a piece about this, but one of the things that came in it, which was uh, terrifying to me, was they said, in, in future, people will learn Shakespeare by having a nanobot injected into their bloodstream that will communicate to its brain at, a, at the level of the neuron. I'm up for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. And, and the humanist in me is sort of terrified by, by, by that notion. So that's a very long way of saying Christ only knows what the media or what any part of it will look like in 20 or but 30 years. the joy years. of discovery is part of it. Success is a journey, not just the destination. I'll, good... give, I'll give you an example. I did A-level English literature, which I did terribly oh, at. What did you read? We did Measure for Measure. Oh, that's, my fa- that's one of my it's, favourite plays. Again, yeah, and it's a, it's, quite a, it's a play of many mixed emotions, isn't it? I mean, yeah. It's not quite a comedy or a tragedy or whatever, but I remember f- on first reading it thinking this is impenetrable nonsense. But then as we went through it across the term and I started to get behind the characters and the language, I thought, this is genuinely genius. Yeah, and that's the great joy of Shakespeare. He combines being a hack... And he churned it out with a genius. And no one really has ever reached that same level as him in his ability to do that. So he wasn't some rarefied person chiselling out four words every two years of genius. He was someone hacking this stuff out for a popular audience. But every time he wrote something, he wrote something beautiful and previously unimaginable using words that he'd invented in sentences that made perfect sense and fit a perfect rhythm. I mean, it's an extraordinarily unrepeatable um, figure Shakespeare and one of the things I found when I read this I read them on the, the tube and I, you know, your listeners I honestly would recommend doing this as a thing six takes six months you can read 38 pages of, uh, 38 plays by Shakespeare on the tube um, I'm still I've got Ed Balls's biography I'm halfway through read, that I've got Nick Clegg after oh, that oh don't read that oh I'm a political oh, come, geek oh come on read honestly read read Measure for Measure again before you read Ed Balls we've got Nick Clegg coming on in a few oh, weeks you have to just pretend to have read it it's worse than that I want to read oh, it oh god well I would recommend instead of doing that if you have the choice between Ed Balls <laughs> self-serving platitudes about his political career or reading Shakespeare read Shakespeare what you find actually by doing it is though you you get in the rhythm and you you as you said with with school but also more if you do it yourself you get the rhythm of it and it becomes easier and easier and easier because you 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 get the sense of 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 what's happening um, how do we get on Shakespeare there? Uh, well, I asked you about the kind of double page piece that you did. In oh, the yeah. Song. It was fantastic. It was, and, and you know, I, I still very often will grab a play of Shakespeare and and, and take it on the tube. I, I'm now I now I now allow myself in an act of vanity to review. Shakespeare plays for the TLS. Having never really seen, I never, yeah. I, I never really went to see them because I saw a terrible Mark Rylance Macbeth, which had Jane Horrocks, you know, Bubbles from Ab Fab. I do. She was in Little Voice, which was directed she was. and written by a friend of mine. Mark she was. Herman. Well, she did this terrible. It's a famously awful Macbeth, which has kind of scarred my my Shakespeare watching. Deliberately awful, or just awful? It was just awful. Oh, and right. uh, uh, she was Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, and she uh, wandered around stage. And during the sleepwalking scene, she wet herself live on stage. And it was set in this sort of strange commune and Mark Rylance, who's, who's the director and played Macbeth, um, was wearing sort of a Harry Krishna outfit. Sounds great. Um, it was terrible. At and which it, point did it become bad? Oh, it, honestly. And it was, so, it was just so awful. It kind of was this symbol of how Shakespeare can be sort of battered and, and pushed into horrible content. But, but it had bubbles from Ab Fab weeing on the stage every night. I met her in real life. I was lucky enough to go to the premiere of Little Voice, actually, and I met her, and I met Michael Caine, and I sat next to Ian Rush, so that was was real. Which of the three did you most like? Um, Michael Caine was nice. Was he? Yeah. I'd love him on the podcast. Yeah, and he's he's, he's a sort of rabid Brexiteer, isn't he? I think he is. I don't want to do him a disservice. I've got a feeling he's popped up in that that sort of pre-Brexit 
fervour of everyone asking anyone what do you think about Brexit, I've got a feeling he wanted to take his country back. I do could you, be wrong. Do you think that um, the media is at risk, or the kind of rolling news is at risk of disappearing up his own backside, as it were? Because, you know, I watch you and lots of people like Isabel Oakeshott, people that I've worked with for many years, doing the paper reviews, and my first thought is, the papers don't really set the agenda anymore. If I watch the paper review, it's because it's A, because it's on, but B, it's because what you guys are chatting about, the paper's just the, the springboard to the chat, really. Yeah, and it's their best, it's their best ranked show, the Sky paper review. You can tell, because the, they do loads of them. Yeah, and the, the evening one, the 11.30 one, often is the best rank of the whole day. But I think you're right. I mean, the, I think papers do set the agenda in the sense that they do a lot of the, the, the digging on stories. They still get people talking. And I think it serves the broadcast media. I think it serves social media. But you're right. I mean, it's a mistake for any paper and any institution to get above itself. And I think historically, as a medium, newspapers have done that. They've got cocky. And there's been an element of hubris as technology has come and sort of bitten them on the arse. Um, so I think you're right. You don't want to overstate the value of papers, but papers do start a conversation. And I, I, I think it's, you don't want to become self-indulgent about all of this nonsense. But the Sky Papers thing works simply because it's just like a radio show or a TV show where two or three people who you'll either like or not like have a chat about things and you'll either agree with them or disagree with them, but you might have a profitable disagreement in in, in your own mind. And you want to be careful that you don't, pitch it too highly, more highly than that. And, you know, you know, nothing worse than sort of journalists congratulating themselves and saying how wonderful they are and how wonderful journalism is and because they've done that for 250 years and it's not really helped them an awful lot. But it's the only time even on News Channel and Sky that you actually get some opinion being discussed. Because well, when it's the wheel and they're just doing the straight headlines or it's live at five or whatever, it is that traditional news show where you've got a package, the next package is teed up and then there's the advert, the weather, and then it's game over. But the question is, I mean, that's a regulatory thing as much as anything else, that we live in a, in a world where we have uh, allegedly an impartial media. Now, obviously that's a fiction because anyone who dropped an alien in the planet and made them watch Sky News, Channel 4 News and BBC News and say they're all acting equally impartially, no one would possibly agree with them. Every human being brings with them an aspect of partiality. It's part of being human. They try to be balanced. I think they generally do a... It's not a criticism of a, 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 a news show like Channel 4. It's a very, very well-produced, I think, provocative, edgy, opinionated news programme. It's not impartial. The beliefs of the people who make it seep out from every pore as they're doing it. Consciously and unconsciously, yeah, exa- I would imagine. Exactly right. And, and they don't seem to be ashamed. I, I think that will change in the end because I think we live in a world of, 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 of the internet where there is no regulation, where people are free to be opinionated. But even newspapers, you, you know, if you're a Times or a Telegraph or a Sun or a Guardian reader, you're picking the lens through which they're going to look yeah, at the news. and it's obvious as well. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. I think that's the way... And if you're a Channel 4 viewer, you're, you watch Channel 4 news rather than the BBC news because you want something that has a little bit, I would suspect, of a liberal left edge to it. And it's kind of folly to pretend that that's not what's going on here. And I wonder, actually, as more TV is watched online, that very old-fashioned view that you need a licence to produce TV news, which goes back to the fact that you once had a spectrum that was narrowly defined and you had to apply for a place on the spectrum to be able to broadcast. That is, of course, going to be exploded. It's already exploded, but will be exploded to smithereens over the next Well, the BBC is shedding channels themselves. BBC Three now is online only. Yeah, and online only. They're not actually subject to, to regulation. Channel 4 News website, although it probably... Um, thinks it is, is not actually subject to, to Ofcom because the act that empowered Ofcom, such as it was back in 2003, didn't mention websites. So so I think we're going to live in a world where, where there's more strident journalists. Now, some people are frightened of that because they think, oh, it'll make everything too opinionated. But I think there's still a market for balanced journalism. But it's folly to pretend that you'll always be able to get impartial because 
human beings aren't impartial and the people who present these shows and direct them and edit them are human beings. Where do you get your news from? Because if I'm honest, most of my news, I just go straight to Twitter straight away. If I want to know what's happened, I'll go on Twitter. And then if I want some kind of digestion of it, I'll read, I'll read the paper the next day and I'll go on the BBC News website. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same, really. I, I, so when I wake up this morning, Trump debates, I go on Twitter to find the best place, I think, of someone who'll do the highlights of it well. Um, it might bounce me to a, to a website. You know, I think the best websites, I think for, for long-form reading, I think the Times is very good, but the Guardian website is is brilliant. It's 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 an incredible thing. You can see why it loses so much money because it's just... It's, it's incredibly well-resolved and just well a, resolved. a thing of beauty. So you have the BBC News, Guardian News, the two websites arguably that have distorted the market so much for, for newspapers. I think they're very good. I think the Times, which is not trying to do that, but to try and be an addition feel, I think ha- has its place in it. So I look at that. But generally speaking, like I think a lot of people, I'm plugged into Twitter and hopefully follow enough of a range of people that I don't just hear one set of beliefs shouted back at me. I also don't really have one set of beliefs. So I'm not, I've never voted for a political party. I'm I'm kind of sceptical of a lot of politicians. So I don't, I'm not tribal in that sense. I don't want to just follow Labour people or Tory people. So I'd, I'd hope that the people I follow at least sort of bounce around. I'm trying to unfollow Labour people at the moment because they're just talking a lot of nonsense well, also, or despairing. Well, it's not your party anymore. Someone said, I was, on, I was doing a TV thing t- today and they said to me, what, you know, could Tony Blair come back? Oh, yes, please. And I said, if Tony Blair comes back, he'll have to start his own party. I'll join. I know you'd join. I'd you'd... be his John Prescott. Oh. No, you're not left-wing enough to, to be as useful idiot like that, are you? <laughs> no. And I was disappointed at John, actually, if I'm honest, when he over Chilcot, when he said, yeah, I think it is illegal. I mean, it was just to get a headline. I mean, you know, f- fancy doing that after all these years. Anyway, I'm not a, I'm not an LBC presenter. <laughs> I'm not here to opine. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was, I was going to get you. What, what do you really think of Tony, Tony Blair, Paul? Well, interestingly, I don't agree with him on some things, and I agree with Corbyn on a few things. I would, um, I would abolish Trident, for example. I just think nuclear weapons are profoundly evil, and for me, that's that settles the argument. You're happy uh, with him. I, I think Corbyn. The problem with Corbyn is if you distill little parts of what he says, there's lots of liberal left people would agree with it. It's the baggage that comes. He with, surrounds himself with, with horrible people who are quite bullying, anti-Semitic, just nasty people, and he himself looks like a retired geography teacher, and he's got the same level of competence. That, that's my criticism of him in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and You're listening to LBC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop, this is not an audition. If as a result of this podcast you take my job, I'm going to be deeply, deeply unsettled. Well, James Ray is coming on in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh... <laughs> Well, Stig, it's been a real education. Thank you ever so much for your time. Great pleasure. A Big Things Media Production. 